Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Well, hello and welcome to our new series on Philippians. Over the next few months, we're going to be studying the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And given that we only just finished our series on 2 Corinthians only last week, I reckon we're going to be struck by just how very different this letter is to the one that we've just studied. You see, throughout the letters to the Corinthians, Paul has been dealing with a church that, well, he loved them greatly, but there were many of them who had rejected him. And in those letters, we could see a lot of hurt that Paul was feeling, and, but we're not going to see any of that here. In fact, it's pretty much exactly the opposite. In this letter to the Philippians, he's giving thanks to God. He's giving thanks to him for the Philippian church and for their support and, and for their partnership. Right, so what do we know about Philippi? Well, Philippi was a city in northeastern Greece, uh, formerly known as Cronides, but it had a bit of a name change in 356 BC when King Philip II of Macedon decided that he wanted to name it after himself. Uh, he was the father of Alexander the Great, by the way. Uh, and the reason that this city was important to Philip was because he fortified it and he built a garrison there so that, first of all, he could conquer and then defend some nearby gold mines, right? So it was all about money and him being able to accumulate some wealth for himself. But by the time of Paul, Philippi had been swallowed up by the enormous Roman Empire, and the Roman culture had been pretty much ingrained into Philippi. And apparently, although it wasn't the capital in the region, Philippi was one of the leading cities, and it, and it was one of the major stopover points on, on one of the military highways that Rome used to build. And if you have a look at that map there, you can see that military highway marked in red, and I've marked Philippi on it for us. But... Why was Philippi so close to Paul's heart? Well, Philippi was the first major centre in Europe where Paul had preached the gospel. 
so that's one reason. But I think the, the more major reason is that the Lord had given Paul a very specific direction to get there. And to explain this, we're going to move on to another map now. Now, this is the map that we actually had when I gave our series on Acts on the book of Acts. And when we got to Acts chapter 16, this is the map that we had up. Right? So that we've been plotting Paul's second missionary journey with those larger, bolder red arrows there. And so if you follow those arrows, Paul and Silas started off at Antioch. And then they moved on and they visited a number of churches that Paul had planted on his first missionary trip. And then when they got to Lystria, they picked up Timothy and, and so Timothy joined them on their mission. And, and yes, this is the same Timothy uh, as who makes an appearance in this letter that we're studying now. Uh, then when they got to uh, Phrygia and Galatia, they thought, right, we won't head off into Asia. Now, Asia isn't Asia as we know it. What they called Asia is what we know as modern-day Turkey. Uh, but the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going to go in there. And um, so then they thought, all right, we'll keep heading on this way then. So they kept going on their way and they got to Mysia. And when they got to Mysia, they thought, well, maybe we might try Bithynia. And so they decided they're going to go to Bithynia, but we're told that the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so they continued on their way some more and they got to Troas. And it was when they got to Troas that Paul had a vision in the night. So in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, we read, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so they found their way to Philippi, which was the main city in the region, and that's where they preached the gospel, and that's where they planted a church. Wow. <clears throat> you know, whenever I read that story, I sort of get a little bit goosebumpy, uh, remembering the times when God has given us, Robin and I, spiritual direction and, and prompting, and, and these times when, yeah, you could put it down to coincidence, but we know better than that. We know, no, this is something that only God can do, and we're pretty sure that God is telling us to, to proceed in this direction. You see, whenever God gives a word or a dream or a vision, I want you to understand that usually this isn't just so that we can have a nice little devotional thought about ourselves. And it's not so that we can just feel good about ourselves and, oh, I've had an experience of God. Usually God gives us these things as an assurance of call. All right, so for example, um, for us, when, when Bush Disciples first began, the way that the Lord revealed it to us and, and the way that it was confirmed through other people, it, it was something that only God can do. And so we knew for sure that, that this was a direction from God. And because of this certainty, through all of the tough times, uh, we've never considered, never seriously considered pulling out. Um, or abandoning this call because we know for sure that God has set us in this direction and if or when God ever changes his mind and he says, right, it's time for a new direction, we know that he will give us just as certain a direction as what he gave us to begin it when he wants us to move on to the next direction.
And some of you might have experienced something similar. When circumstances have happened, and most, a lot of people might go, oh, that was a coincidence, but you've realized, no, that, that was something that only God can do. And so you've been given the certainty that, wow, this is God's will, and this is what we're going to do. This is where God wants me, and this is how God wants me serving him. And if you have ever experienced anything like that, well, you'll understand very well this very special place that this church in Philippi had in Paul's heart. And it's similar for us. It, it's very similar to the place that you guys have in our heart. And, and when I say you guys, I'm talking to a lot more people now. All of a sudden, you know, we started off here just in this St. Georgian district, um, but this ministry is growing. And a lot of you who are listening to this today don't even know you but you still hold a very special place in our hearts. All right, so Paul's connection with the church in Philippi was the first church he planted in Europe. Uh, his arrival in Philippi was by no accident, and at the time he knew he was in exactly the right place. He was exactly where the Holy Spirit wanted him to be, and the Lord did some amazing stuff while he was there. Right, so let's get to the letter itself. If we don't start now, we're not going to get very far into it. Oh, by the way, something I should tell you before we get into it is Paul is writing this from in, inside a prison, right? So he's been jailed and he doesn't actually say where he is writing it from, um, but traditionally the church has always understood it to be during his imprisonment in Rome and I, I don't see any reason to dispute that. So... Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. From that one verse, we can learn a lot about ourselves and about who we are in Christ. You know, when some people talk about our identity in Christ, they, well, there's a couple of different lines of thought on it. Some people they try to really build us up and they pump us up and, and they try and pump our egos up and make us feel how important we are and, and how lucky God is to have us and, and God just almost couldn't live without us. This is who we are in Christ. But, but then there's other people who they want to try and shame us and feel like, wow, we're, we're nothing. We're just like a bug waiting to be squashed. But here, right here in this one verse we get a true picture of who we are in Christ. And there's a couple of facets to it. Now, Paul and Timothy, I reckon, I reckon these blokes would have been pretty much spiritual heroes to the Philippians. Well, not to all the Philippians because um, the, the townsfolk and the, um, and the magistrates, well, that... They didn't think much of Paul and Silas when they were there. Uh, they had them beaten and thrown into prison. Uh, it, it was in Philippi, by the way, where Paul and Silas were in jail and they were singing that hymn and during the night this earthquake happened and, and, and all of the doors sprang open in the jail and, and um, then the, the jailer fretted he thought oh no all my prisoners have left this is going to go bad for me and and so he's actually about to kill himself and Paul bursts in on him no 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 don't don't kill yourself 
and he shares with him the gospel and he and the jailer takes him home and and that night the jailer and his whole family become Christians. Now, uh, if, if you if you know that story, that's great. If you don't know that story, read Acts chapter sixteen and you'll know all about it. Actually, I want to challenge everyone. Everybody who's, who's listening to this, we're just beginning this new series in Philippians. Why not just read the whole of Acts chapter 16? It's only a short chapter. It won't take you very long, and it'll give you a picture of, of what happened while Paul was in Philippi. Okay, it's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. But so, so to the townsfolk, not so popular. But to the church, surely he must have been seen as a spiritual hero. They, they, he, he was the one who brought the gospel to them. But they'd seen all of this miraculous stuff happening. Right? That they had witnessed Paul's faithfulness and, and his willingness to be incarcerated for the gospel. Um, they'd seen the activity of God through Paul with the earthquake and his miraculous release from prison and the transformation of the jailer and his whole family. In their eyes, Paul and Timothy would have had to have been spiritual heroes. But you know, do you know how Paul describes himself? as servants of Christ Jesus. Now, some people, even in one commentary that I read, they really try to downplay this word servant and what it actually means. In the original Greek, the word is douloi. That's the plural, doulos. Some of you will have heard that's the singular. It means bond servants, slaves. And some people try to tell us that, that a doulos was a very privileged position. No, it wasn't. Uh, a doulos was a slave. And a slave is exactly as it sounds. They were a bonded servant, sort of like a house slave, if you like. Right? So not, not the sort of person that you would be driving with a whip while they went and worked in a quarry, but a slave nevertheless. Uh, a slave, a bond servant, a doulos was bound to serve their master. The master would be someone who would, he was quite within his rights to come home and put up his feet, and the slave servant would be compelled to serve their master. This was their role. Uh, and if they didn't enjoy their job, well, they certainly weren't free to go and look for another one. They weren't free to go and look for another job where they might have better pay and conditions. And... So they didn't really have many rights. They were a slave. So let's shake off any illusion that we might have that a bond servant is any kind of title of honour. And Paul himself sees himself as a bond servant of Christ, a lowly slave of Christ. In fact, that's one of his favourite descriptions of himself. Bond servant. Slave of Jesus. But even though the word itself describes a very lowly station in life, I have no doubt that for Paul, as well as for you and as well as for me, uh, it is a most wonderful and high privilege to be a slave servant of Christ. And this is our proper attitude. How could we ever compare ourselves to Paul, this wonderful apostle who wrote around about half the New Testament? And yet, 
he considered him, himself to be a slave of Jesus. And we are too. And what a privilege it is to be a slave for Jesus. Right? So that's one facet of who we are in Christ. The second facet is we are saints. He addressed this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, at that point, some of us might be going, well, if I lived in Philippi, he obviously wasn't writing to me because I'm no saint. And some of you who know me might be saying, well, he wouldn't have been writing to that Michael Brumpton either because he's no saint. But I wonder, do we understand what a saint really is? I don't think that saint, as defined by the Roman Catholic Church, is what he had in mind. Okay, um, I don't think that it was meaning that, that a saint is somebody who has done miraculous things and has been a really nice person and done really good stuff. And he certainly didn't mean saint as understood by the world today, where it just means somebody who seems to be a bit selfless and done some really nice things for people. Biblically, what is a saint? Well, the Greek word is hagios which means holy one. A saint is someone who is holy. But we don't become saints by doing good things. And we don't become saints by doing a miracle in Jesus' Jesus's name or being canonized. We become saints by the grace of God. The key to this all is the address to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, right? These people, that they happen to be at Philippi. But what's their address? In Christ Jesus. Now, I, I don't want to ever hear any Christian saying, oh, I'm no saint, because that's, that's just faithlessness. It's faithlessness to the extreme. In fact, I think some people wear it as some kind of badge of honour. Oh, I'm no saint. And they think that, you know, if I can give the impression to other people that I'm not a saint, then then I can connect better with the sinful world and people will be more welcoming of me. And what a load of rot. It's faithlessness. That's what that is. Because if I am in Christ, a saint is exactly what I am. And if you are in Christ, a saint is exactly what you are. No matter how imperfect we are, no matter how unfinished God's transformational work seems to be in us, we are saints. We are saints, not because we're so wonderful, but because this is the power of the blood of Jesus. The moment that you yield your life to Jesus and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, that's when you instantly become a saint. This is who we are. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to finish us and perfect us. When we get to verse 6, it says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so you might look at yourself now and feel, oh, I'm not much of a saint. 
But don't despair because God hasn't finished with you yet. God hasn't finished with any of us yet. He's going to keep on working on us and he's going to keep on transforming us. Sanctification is the big theological term. If you like big theological terms, that's it. Sanctification. And Jesus is going to continue his sanctification of us right through until the day that he returns. Sometimes when the gospel gets preached, we get given the impression that all I have to do is say the sinner's prayer and that's it. But the truth of the matter is that when you first gave your life to Jesus, that was only the very beginning. That is when God began a good work in you right there on that day and your life from then on is going to be a life of discipleship, a life of following Jesus right through until the day that he returns. But the overseers and the deacons, they seem to get a bit of a special mention here. What's that about? He's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The overseers were the spiritual leaders. Episcopos is, is the word. Um, episkopos is the singular. Um, and it's from which it, it's actually the word which sometimes or used to or still does by some get translated as bishop. Um, all right, so let's think of the overseers as the spiritual leaders. Um, and then there's the deacons, and the deacons were the helpers or the service or the support folk. Right? So we've got the overseers as spiritual leaders, and the deacons were also leaders, uh, but they were in an area of practical support within the church. Now, interestingly, um, so let's go back to the whole bishops thing. Um, some churches have bishops today, but not at all like they have bishops here. So today, a church that has bishops would usually have one bishop who governs over a large number of churches. So for where we live, um, like to, I think the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church have bishops, um, and I think they would be situated in Toowoomba, but they cover all of the Anglican and Roman Catholic churches out this direction. Um, a bishop, one bishop over many churches. Um, in, in fact, that's where that word Episc Episcopalian comes from. Some churches call themselves an, an Episcopalian church, um, which follows a succession of bishops. Uh, but here in Philippi, there were several bishops in the one local fellowship. So it's obviously just some kind of spiritual leader. But I want you to notice here that it's not only the overseers and the deacons who are the saints. It's not only the bishops and the deacons who are the saints. These are the church leaders, but the whole church are the saints. Are the overseers and the deacons more important? No, they're not. Are the overseers and the deacons more holy? No, they're not. The whole church are holy. And this is... This is what we need to remember. You know, sometimes we think, oh, it's only those special leaders who are the special folk. They might be the saints. No, we are all, all Christians are saints. Righto, so in verse 2, he gives them a greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful greeting. Grace peace 
And sometimes we need to be reminded of these things, don't we? And yet in some churches, sometimes there isn't a whole lot of grace there. And sometimes within churches, there isn't a whole lot of peace. Sometimes it can be anything but. But in Christ, this is supposed to be our bread and butter. Grace and peace, an undeserved gift, that wonderful gift of forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And the peace that we have with God and the peace that we have with each other in Christ. By the way, we're only two verses into this letter yet. But have you noticed how many times Paul has written God, Father, Lord, Jesus, Christ, Look at this. I'm putting up on the screen now. There's the 11 verses that we're hoping to study today. Um, what do you think that perhaps Paul's focus might be on this letter? Letter I've gone through and I've highlighted all of his references to God and Jesus and, and wherever he's referring to him. He sure mentions Jesus and God a lot, doesn't he? And that is exactly his focus. Paul is in jail. He's just about completed his race and his focus is on Jesus Christ. Now, we live in a nation where physically we have pretty much everything that we need. There aren't many places on earth and in history where people are as well off as what they are in Australia. And yet we are a nation who even before COVID-19 began and filled many with great fear, we were a nation who was suffering an epidemic of anxiety and depression. It was just running rampant. And it's even worse now. We are a people who crave peace. But most people look for peace anywhere but its true source. Now, Paul, he knows very well about peace and he knows where it comes from. Paul is in chains in prison and his focus is on Jesus Christ and he had all the peace in the world. And I reckon as we work our way through this letter to the Philippians, we're going to find it quite relevant for us at this time as we discover grace and peace and joy and contentment in the face of adversity. Let's move on. Verse 3 introduces a reason why Paul wrote the letter. He's pouring out his thanksgiving to God for this church in Philippi. Every time that he remembered them, and he remembered them quite often because he prayed for them often, and whenever he prayed for that Philippian church, it was always a prayer of joy. Now, let me tell you, that that's not always the case when he prayed for other churches. Uh, a lot of times when he was praying for other churches, he was filled with anxiety for them and, and distress and concern and despair. And I can just picture Paul sometimes praying, Lord, what on earth are they thinking? What are they doing? But that's not the case with the Philippian church. It was quite different. Why? What was so special about the Philippian church? Well, it was because of the partnership that they had with him in the gospel. These guys weren't consumers of God. They weren't consumers of ministry. They were partners. They were partners in ministry. Now, 
I don't know if it's always been this way, but it certainly is the most common model of church today. And it's probably because we've become a very consumer culture. Uh, largely, we've become a consumer church. Do you know what I mean by that? The church, we see the church as someone, as a body that, that will provide a product or they'll provide a service for me to consume. And yeah, that might include a worship service, but it's got it's a whole package. You know, the worship service, the youth ministry, the mums groups, the dads groups, the men's groups, the camps. Uh, they might even pr provide a Christian school for me to send my kids to and child minding when I go to church so that I can not be distracted by them and, and they give me a kids ministry. You know, we see it as, as a church that will provide a service for me that I will consume. And in, in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, the whole mega church model seems to be based on this, a, a person's desire to have church done to them. And for a lot of people, their attitude is, yeah, I'm part of this church, yeah. But if they find another church that provides them with a more comprehensive service, well, they're just as likely to move on and go to that one. But do you notice why Paul is filled with joy here? They're not a consumer church. They are partners with Paul in ministry. And that's why they'd always been, right from, from when they were first saved. You know, some people sort of think, oh, no, I can't get involved in ministry until I've been a Christian for a long time. No, these guys were partners in ministry right from when they were first saved. And let me tell you, some of the best evangelists are those who are new Christians. So if you're a new Christian, just know that the Lord's going to use you and he'll use you immediately. And you know what? This is the sort of culture that I want to see grow in our church and in this church. And for those who are listening to this, because your church is closed at the moment, it's the sort of culture I hope that you want to see grow in your church. Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of ways that we can partner. Uh, for some churches, the main thing that they seem to want is your money. Uh, and financial support is important. Uh, in fact, that's some of what Paul is thanking the Philippians for. They provided for him while he was in prison. And, and that before that, they'd provided for him while he was on mission. And even in our ministry here at Bush Disciples, we, we couldn't be doing what we do if we weren't receiving support from our regular givers. And in fact, more of, I've told you this before, but um, more of our income now comes from people who live away from here uh, than, than what we receive locally. But whether you're local or whether you're from away and you're financially supporting us, I want to thank you for this. It's, it's, um, it's something that we rely on and we thank you for your partnership in this. But with some churches, that's the extent of their vision of partnership. For them, uh, their, their view of partnership is, well, well, partnership with us becomes a code for give us your money and give it regularly. Like sometimes you might hear people say, well, you can give a one-off donation or you can partner with us and sign up for a monthly or a weekly donation or whatever. Um. And it sort of becomes like a subscription. I'll subscribe to this church and I can consume what it produces. Now, 
I've actually presented, I've deliberately presented that in a rather crass sort of a way, and I haven't been fair on a lot of churches. But but I, I want to make you really realise, I want to really draw this out, that I want you to be a partner with us, or, or to be a partner with your own regular church in a way which is much greater than merely being financial. How? When you live so far away, how can you partner with this ministry of Bush Disciples? Well, from my perspective, um, I think in a way it's probably more us partnering with you. Uh, this ministry of Bush Disciples cannot achieve what we believe God is calling the church to be in the bush. We cannot take the gospel to the people in the bush. We can't achieve this. But you can. You see, I'm not in the place where you are. I don't meet the people that you meet. I don't attend the cattle sales that you go to. I'm not in your workplace. I don't shop where you shop. I don't chat with the same roo shooters who come knocking on your door asking if they can shoot on your place this weekend. I don't live next door to your next door neighbour. But you do. And the only way that the gospel is going to be shared in your community is if you are sharing it. Or what about if instead of watching church on your own, at home alone, how about you invite a couple of people over or the neighbouring family to come over and worship with you? Invite them over and say, hey, how about you guys come over for lunch? Um, but we'd really love it if, if you didn't mind, if we just sit down and we just watch, watch an hour of church together just before lunch. You might be amazed at their response. This is how you can partner with us in ministry. Uh, our main ministry here is, well, we're unashamedly a teaching ministry. Teaching the Word of God is what we do. We, we try to make it easy enough to understand without stripping the gospel of any of its power. Um, and, and we make a whole bunch of resources available for churches um, who are out in the bush and, and for individual Christians who are out in the bush. Uh, to help them to be the church that God wants them to be. We don't want to take over your church. We're not interested in taking over your church. We want to partner with you uh, if that is helpful to you. And every now and then someone contacts me and tells me that they've been listening to these messages for a while and that the teaching's been really helpful to them. Now... I know this is going to make me look really shallow, uh, but I find that a very real encouragement. Uh, so if you, if there's anybody who's been listening to this for a while, um, contact us. You'll find our contact details if you just search Bush Disciples, um, www.bushdisciples.church. You'll find our contact details. Send us an email, give us a phone call, whatever. Um, we just love to hear what God is doing. It's a real encouragement for me and Robin and it's a real encouragement for our whole church. But whenever somebody's contacted me in the past, I've always asked them a question, well, how did you hear about us? And occasionally it's somebody who's just stumbled upon us out of the blue, but usually it's been by a referral by word of mouth. Uh, somebody else has 
found the teaching useful and helpful to them, and so they've told this person about it, and they've started listening. And that's another way that you can partner with us. If, if this is something which has been helping you to grow in the Lord, tell someone else about it. Tell them it's free. Uh, show them how they can access it. That's a very simple way that you can partner with us. Right? So, so do you get the point? Partner with us by sharing Christ where you are. Partner for us by, by praying. Pray for us, but not just for us. Pray for all the people across Australia and, and across the world who are listening to these messages this very day that the Lord would touch them and that the Lord would speak to them and that the Lord would draw them close to him. And if you find this resource helpful, tell other people how to access it. That's how you can partner with us. Righto, when we get to verse 7, Paul says, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. What Paul is saying is we're all in this together. In Christ, the Christian church is a fellowship of grace. And in Christ, we are a fellowship who support one another. And we're a fellowship who love one another and build one another up and, and we are in ministry together. And he identifies three ways that the Philippian church were doing this. Firstly, they were supporting him in his imprisonment. Now, their jails are nothing like our jails that we have in our country. A large part of Paul's daily sustenance and provision had to be provided by others. And, and so he depended upon the support coming in from other Christians who weren't in prison. And I hope and I pray that our eyes aren't blinded to the persecuted church today. Uh, we have every opportunity to care for Christians who are suffering for Christ. Through organisations like Open Doors and Barnabas Fund, uh, we can support the persecuted church. So they supported Paul while he was in jail. And we should look for opportunities to do that for other Christians. Secondly, they shared in his ministry in the defence of the gospel. Do you realise that the gospel of Jesus Christ is under constant attack? It's under attack from outside the church and it's under attack from within the church. It gets twisted, it gets misrepresented. And we, the church, every single one of us, need to be active in the defence of the gospel. This is one of the large differences between the church in Philippi and the church in Corinth. Uh, in Corinth, as soon as Paul left, the false teachers moved on in and, and the church accepted it readily enough. But that didn't happen in Philippi. The Christians in Philippi actively defended the gospel. And I would encourage you, read the Word of God, know the Word of God, um, receive teaching and, uh, and just stand against anything which is, which is wrong, anything which is false that, that is trying to creep into your church. Thirdly, 
They share in his ministry through the confirmation of the gospel. How is the gospel confirmed? I believe we can see a bit of a picture of this in the next few verses, and it's got a lot to do with love and Christian fellowship and Christian affection for one another. Uh, In John chapter 13, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I don't know what I was thinking when when I thought that I was going to be able to cover all of these um, 11 verses in this one message today. Um, the confirmation of the gospel is going to be the topic now for next week. We're going to cover verses 7 to 11 next week. But I just want to leave you with this. To confirm the gospel is to demonstrate that it is true. The gospel isn't simply just a concept. The gospel isn't just pie in the sky when we die. And it's not something which is idyllic but non-existent or unachievable. The gospel among the people of God is to be demonstrated. It's about love, fellowship, purity, righteousness, holiness. And may the gospel be confirmed in us through these things through that love and fellowship and righteousness and holiness may it be demonstrated in us as it was in those philippians let's pray heavenly father we want to thank you for your abounding love we want to thank you for the sainthood that we have in christ jesus that even though we were totally undeserving by your grace you have made us holy through the blood of jesus Lord, may we never take this for granted. May we be partners with one another in the gospel. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would confirm the gospel, that our words wouldn't only say that the gospel is true, but that our actions would demonstrate the truth of the gospel. And as Paul prayed, I now pray that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Lord, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of our God. Amen.